Hi, everyone. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Deb Clark. Deb is currently a NED, but is also a former head of manager research and former fund manager. Deb, welcome. Thanks, Hi, Nice to see you. Welcome, Deb. Good morning. Could you please give us a sense of, I suppose, your current role, but also the roles that Dan just mentioned that have sort of led you to where you've got to now? Absolutely, Mary. So I retired last year after nearly 40 years in the industry, which has been really split into two careers, if you like. So the first was as a fund manager for nearly 20 years. And then I moved into consulting and specifically into manager research for the second half of my career. And I would say that that really, I definitely found my home doing manager research. I really loved looking at other fund managers, seeing what they were doing, having been a fund manager myself. So I think it's sort of poacher term gamekeeper. And as you say, now I'm doing some NED and consulting work. Fantastic. Great. I dare say we've got a few fund managers and researchers listening to the show, hopefully. So I'm sure they'd be really interested to hear some of your thoughts later. But just kick us off. Why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? So I'm a great crafter. So I do a lot of quilting, cross-stitch and crochet. And I've done most of that for over 25 years before it became fashionable through the likes of Tom (laughs) Daly. And I do enjoy it because it's very different to my daytime role. And you do actually have to concentrate if you want to make something reasonably decent. You have Mm -hmm. to focus. So it's good to take it away from the day to day job that you're doing. I find those, particularly the areas of craft that you just mentioned, you have to be quite meticulous, which, as you say, does require quite a lot of concentration. My mum, a few years ago, got back into knitting and tried to do it whilst watching the TV, but found that she kept dropping stitches everywhere. We had cardies with different length sleeves and everything, (laughs) but she's very well practiced now. And I agree, it's a really good way of, you almost switch off your brain because you're using your brain for something else, I suppose. The other side of your brain as well, although there is a creative element, I think, to research. But yes, I think you're using another part of your brain and you can get involved in lots of. So I belong to a yarn bombing group, which we can talk about another day. But it's great <laughs> to be involved in the local community. I had a feeling that answer might get Mary a little bit excited because we've talked about <laughs> craft and stuff a little bit before. You're a fan of sewing. I was just listening to another podcast you did where you discussed that point that you're into craft. So I knew there was a good one coming there for Mary. Excellent. Love it. So, Deb, maybe and let's definitely pick up the point about creativity in research because I'm really keen to explore that but perhaps if you first look back over your time in the industry what would you say are some of the most important trends of the last few decades? There's probably three that I'd pick up on and the first of those is the change of technology so actually I was presenting to the Amesy Academy group three or four days ago most of them I would have said average age was under 30 and I was talking to them about when I first started in fund management I would actually chart some stocks every day write little pencil marks of where these stocks were going and we also had somebody who posted the price of certain bonds every hour through the day and the look was slightly blank look for everybody <laughs> in terms of really and there was no technology okay we had a little bit of technology but there's no internet basically and that has really changed significantly obviously over the period and I think it's a good and a bad aspect the good aspect is obviously we have access to all of the information we need it's very good for risk systems it's great for helping us understand what's happening but there is also I think the side that perhaps when you were having to go and do research from Mm. sort of ground level you actually had to go and dig away and try and find things that perhaps others hadn't found and I remember talking to an analyst at a large house he said "Mm, to get to Glaxo we had to set up the meeting we had to do all of our homework in advance try and find those really good questions to ask Whereas now with the internet, we can just Google Glaxo and probably get most of that answer that we need without actually having to go into the due diligence. So I think there's some, I'd say, some good and perhaps less good aspects of that. So that's the first one. Technology is a big change. The second one I would say is probably professionalism. And that 
captures a lot of things. I'm thinking there more about what's driven by regulation. Obviously, there's been a number of scandals over the years that I've been involved in investment. And it's also partly a recognition by the industry that they needed to change to become a more inclusive industry, if you like, and recognition that there's an end client out there, whether it's a teacher or a fireman, who's dependent really on the investment returns that are being generated. So I would include within that, perhaps loosely, the sort of move away from staff and manager as Mm. part of that Mm. professionalism. And then I would say the third thing is perhaps the offering. When I was first a fund manager, I worked, we had sort of a mixed fund, a 60-40 fund. We had some equity and bond funds, all fairly straightforward. Now there's a huge plethora of products, and that includes the move recently into alternatives. It also includes the move to sort of more solutions-based. So I would say there's been a lot of product developed to meet client need, which is a good thing. But actually, as you will know, most fund managers are not as good as retiring products as they are at creating new ones. So I think it's led to this explosion of products. I mean, when I left Mercer, when I retired from Mercer last year, I think there was close on a thousand global equity strategies. And you have to ask the question, is that too many? Grouping together some of the comments that you just made there, and perhaps this is a slightly unfair playback, but do you think it's almost taken the personality out of investing a little bit? So you can inject less personality into the research process because there's so much available and you don't have to have that human contact necessarily to get the information. You've also got the sort of move away from staff fund manager and a more regulated, which there's lots of positives to regulation, but a more regulated environment, perhaps with the exception of your final comment around sort of the move towards alternatives. Clearly, the sort of atmosphere in which you're investing is very different. That people are investing today is very different to 40 years ago. Mm. And I just wonder emotionally how that feels, if that makes sense. I think you're right. You could argue that some of the fun has gone out of the industry, perhaps, but I'm not sure the fun was perhaps the right thing to have, if that makes sense. I think it's a great industry to work in, in the sense that if you're curious, you have lots of information, but that's actually not going to tell you the answer. The answer Mm. is in actually discussing with people and asking the right questions and following through on the answers you get. So not just being accepting of the answers you get. I mean, you will know fund managers are very good at telling stories. And sometimes Mm. it's really hard to just interject to say, well, actually, what do you mean? Or can you give an example of something? And to me, that's actually the fun part and almost that creativity that we talked about, which is actually trying to get behind what's the written word and trying to understand things like the culture and what's going on at asset managers. And that's become a much bigger part of the piece in the last 10 years, but is actually probably one of the hardest pieces to actually understand. I certainly love the idea of putting the fun back into funds management. It's kind of, uh, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Picking up on those themes maybe a little bit and moving on to focus a bit more on consultants mm-hmm. generally. I mean, how would you reflect on sort of what consultants have kind of got right over the years and what have consultants got wrong in your view? When I joined the consulting world, obviously I'd been a fund manager and I joined the consulting world and it is very clear to me what they get right is that their clients are the absolute foremost. They're in their mind. They put their clients first and they understand their needs. They very much get into understanding what the client needs, generally listening to clients. What I found moving into consultants, I'm not sure whether this would be sort of what they got wrong or what they got right, but it was quite hard to get some consultants off the fence. So talking to their clients, yes, they understood their needs, but it would be, well, on the one hand, you could do this. And on the other hand, you could do that. Classic consulting answer. (laughs) So it was quite challenging for me who'd come from an environment of fund management where it was very clear you have to make a decision four times out of 10 at least it's not going to be right to come into a consulting world which was much more I suppose by its title consultative and so that was 
perhaps a bit more of a challenge. But I would say the consultants to me very much are the client is there is that trust and it's a trusted advisor relationship. And I would say that's in, in the two consultancies I worked in, that was very evident to me. So they get that right. As I say, perhaps they get things less right. From a consultant perspective, I only really have the experience of Mercer and Mercer, we did waterfront coverage, which was great. We had great ideas, we had great value add over the years. The one thing that was challenging for us as researchers was if you wanted to change your view on a manager when actually nothing had changed at the manager. Mm. That was something I found fascinating because obviously many consultants, perhaps if we got something that was A-rated, many consultants would have had their clients' monies invested and we might think, well, actually, going forward, we don't think the alpha is going to be as strong. We think there's signs of some tension in the team. It may be something. And you went to downgrade it. The consultants were not always happy with that because actually nothing has changed. Why do we want to change this? So that was one of the things that I found interesting from a consultant perspective when you look at it from a research side. Deb, how do you think you combat that challenge on both sides? There's the sitting on the fence challenge and there's the changing yeah. your view when maybe nothing externally looks like it's changed. From the sort of hedging your view perspective, clients have driven consultants to be more directive. And I think the important thing with that is actually that then clients support consultants when they're not going to get everything right. And so to me, if a client says, "Okay, I've heard your both sides of it, which side do you want to come down on? That's fine. But then the client has to accept that that's a view at that point in time. So I think it's a client relationship aspect. I think in terms of the research, we did push ahead with one or two downgrades, which caused some, as these things always do, I'm sure you know, internals. But actually, it's about having conviction in the research we've done, doing the work, showing the work we've done, giving the reasons why. And then again, we have to live with that decision and some will be right. And unfortunately, some will not be right. And then as the consulting relationship works, it's up to the client whether or not they take follow our research or not and we had some clients who would say no we're not going to take that view we're going to take a different view and others who were yes okay that's we're using your research we'll follow that it's about a matter of having conviction I think and increasingly our world of consulting and investment is about conviction there's a lot of behavioral stuff that sits between the fund researchers and the field consultants and particularly around that point you just made around if nothing has changed yet the view changes which can legitimately happen I do actually remember a situation from early in my career back when I was at Mercer actually where that happened a fund manager that was widely used was downgraded and the question to the researcher was why and they were like well we met a lot of the funds again we just decided they weren't in the top tier anymore they just weren't quite there and it yeah. was like, well, what's changed? It's the same team doing the same stuff. And yes. the argument kind of went backwards and forwards. And it's a very hard one to take to your client. But yeah, I guess your point is if you've got to say, look, we're running a convicted process. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do what we think is right. Not want to get them all right. We're just mm-hmm. telling it how we see it kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is the researchers are rewarded. Part of the, an element of their reward is through their recommendations. Same as mm-hmm. an asset manager. So at the end of the day, you've got to get that balance between giving the researcher the freedom to be able to change their mind, yep. which I think is the absolute right thing to do with the fact that it's their responsibility when they make that call. Yeah, it's kind of unhelpful if the field consultants kind of just jack up the stakes on every decision, isn't mm-hmm. it? I'm sure you know, yeah. researchers will agonise over those downgrades. Oh, absolutely. If yes. the field consultants are kind of just cranking up the pressure even more, yeah. it's not exactly going to create the yeah. best decision-making environment, yeah. is it? Yeah. We are trying to do the right thing by our clients, all of us together. <laughs> it's not yeah. separate teams, as you say, but it's an interesting challenge. Deb, should we look at the sort of the other side of the coin, if you like, in terms of what fund managers get right and get wrong? Hmm. So fund managers really want to deliver alpha. I mean, that's what drives them. They have the right intention to deliver alpha for their clients. And they do agonise over a lot of decisions. 
if I go back to when I started, perhaps there wasn't that recognition that there was an ultimate client at the end of this who could be somebody different than your intermediary client. I think they do that correctly. And I think PMs also manage their portfolio within their process. And what I mean by that is that when I was a portfolio manager, I worked for a sort of growth bias manager and I had a process and I would deliver my performance. And sometimes what I didn't know was what the rest of the portfolio for that client looked like. So I didn't necessarily have the full picture. I was delivering what I was expected to deliver. And I think that's something that managers do right, but I'm not sure it helps them. And I think it's perhaps changed a little bit over time. What do managers not do right or do less well? I mean, managers love to tell stories and managers are typically overconfident, I find. And so that's a challenge because as a researcher, you really have to get behind some of that. Yeah. But I would say that one of the things I think managers have got really wrong and perhaps have been looking to improve over the last maybe five, five years, I'll give them credit, some of them for 10 years, is really the lack of diversity in their teams and more importantly, the lack of inclusion of other people's points of view. So it has been an industry that has been dominated by private schools, white males, as we know. Now, I know there's a huge amount of effort that's gone on, particularly through things such as the diversity project. But there still is a long way to go. So I think that's the one thing I would say that managers were slow to get onto that in terms of starting to look like the communities that they serve. The other one thing I would say about fund managers, which is related to that, is don't ever give a really good fund manager a team to manage. To me, the biggest red flag was when someone was saying, oh, we've got this really, really good fund manager and now we've given them the team to have the team to manage. Really, that's not Mm. usually the same skill sets. So I think those asset managers who can find a way to allow investors to invest and actually other people to run the teams or to be a CEO on the teams or something. I think that's a good model to have. It is incredible, isn't it? I mean, not just within fund management, but almost probably within any industry. You start at the bottom rung, if you like, you're very junior and the skill set you need for a junior role is a certain skill set. Then you get promoted and suddenly you've got actually quite a different skill set that you need. And as you get promoted on and on, yeah, often eventually there's people management and you're sort of like, well, I've never managed people. Why would that suddenly be my skills? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or how can you help me? And I think that's the problem is that most organisations will promote somebody to that level and then actually not give them the tools for success. And then they wonder why they fail. Mm. Well, it's because you've taken them from what they're really good at, given them something which, as you say, you haven't had the training or the development for. And then you wonder why they fail. So, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. On a related point, I was just reading a blog you wrote there, your 10 worst due diligence meetings. I noticed you redacted the names has sort of preserved the innocence or whatever, but there was some fantastic points in there. We'll put a link in the show notes. People can maybe read it in its mm. entirety. But well, one of the ones that stuck out to me that resonated was that you were saying that it's amazing how long people can take over long-winded intros to all the team members. And it's kind yeah. of like, just assume the research is half decent at their job and therefore know who everyone is and what they do. And they just kind of get on with it. Yeah, exactly. We've actually asked for those people to be there. The reason we've asked for yeah. them to be there is because they have certain skill sets we're looking for and things that we want to talk to them about. We don't need to hear what they've done, as you say, over the long period. I don't think it's because people want to, or portfolio managers want to sort of take that. I think they just feel they're quite self-important, I mean, not rudely, but just I think they feel they want to explain all about themselves. But it is things such as where people sit when they come into a room. So where does the fund manager sit? I'd like them to sit somewhere in the middle, but often it's the marketing person will sit in the middle. thinking, well, actually, I don't really want you to be saying too much I want you to sit to a side and let the people we want to talk to and I think I mentioned in there as well the the really frustration of I've asked Mary a question and Dan answers it I've asked Mary another question and Dan answers it and eventually I have to say to Dan please I know you love to talk but can I have Mary answer the question I've asked her it's incredible that that will happen 
absolutely. So Deb, that probably leads us quite neatly onto, I guess, another area we were keen to focus on in terms of, so when you undertake or were undertaking fund research, do you have a sort of list of key principles that you would sort of always follow no matter what you were researching? There's a number of principles we follow around things such as active management and where active management is important. But I'll take it from a slightly different perspective in terms of the actual meetings, if you like, and what we're trying to achieve. The first is really that good presenting does not equal good performance and sort of vice versa. You can have somebody who doesn't present well, but actually if you can find the way to interact with them well and actually get them talking about things such as stocks, you can get a very different meeting than you might do if you try your normal way. Try to get to know the person a little bit. And that comes back to perhaps what we were talking about earlier on about the creative side and the sort of fun side. I think there is value in actually understanding and and knowing the people that you're talking to a little bit. There's a fine balance there, but there is an important part of that. And then how they interact with the business. So that sort of starts to bring out the work around culture and things. Because if you are a consultant and you want to give this asset manager your client's money, you really hope that they're still going to be there in five or 10 years to be able to manage that money in the same way that they're motivated to work for your client. So get behind the stories. Try and get the manager to help you understand what they're trying to exploit. It still does surprise me that managers can sort of talk about lots of things, but try to keep it simple. What is it you're actually trying to exploit in the market and why can you do it better than the person, the fund manager next door to you and whether you're really disciplined about it. And actually one of the things that I think is really important is whether you're disciplined about it is if things are going wrong, what support do you get from the organisation? And I've seen that many times. And I think particularly currently with all the awareness around mental health, you really do need an organisation that will support you both in good times, but also in bad times. That's really interesting. I suppose part of that is the benefit of following the same managers over the period of years and years and years. So you kind of build up that prior knowledge of where they've been and what they're doing rather than just showing up on a Wednesday morning and trying to take a view in in isolation on the team. And it is about a relationship. It's a professional relationship that you have with these managers that you've seen over many years. And actually, that does then surprise me when somebody will say, oh, X has just left. They weren't really Mm. important to the process. And you look back at last year's note and you say, well, X last year was critical to the process. Mm. So what happened to X in between these two periods? So don't underestimate the amount of work that a researcher has already done when they come to you as the asset manager. And don't try to pull the wool over their eyes that things are not quite as they seem. So maybe that's another key principle for research is to do that prep. Yeah, that you're, absolutely. You don't have the wool pulled over your eyes. No, exactly. The prep for research is absolutely critical. I think the other thing is to make sure you've got the right people in the room, both yeah. from the research side. And I think that means having perhaps people who've got different perspectives so that you can have that challenge. Particularly if you've got a strategy which you've had, let's say, A rated for several years, but performance has been disappointing then actually it's really important to have some sort of devil's advocate meeting and have somebody to go in who's got a different perspective. And I think it's also important from the fund manager for you to have done the work with the fund manager, make sure they've got the right people in the room as well. Deb, are there any areas that you think go a bit under the radar when it comes to research? I think sometimes researchers are perhaps a little bit intimidated by, if you want to call famous investors, I'm not sure that's the right word, (laughs) but important investors, not right either. But anyway, I, think, I think sometimes people can be a little bit intimidated by PMs, particularly if they're not getting a straight answer. And I think they don't like to appear to be rude and to challenge them. But I do think you need to be prepared to say, look, I haven't understood something that hasn't clarified. I remember I did a research meeting with 
somebody who's now very senior at Mercer, a long time ago when I first started. And we went in and after the first 10 minutes, I said, look, I'm, first thing they did was open this very big spreadsheet and started talking through all the stocks. And I thought, OK, I wasn't quite sure where we were going. And after about 10 minutes, I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I haven't really understood what you're trying to tell me here. So perhaps we can sort of go back and look a little bit closer to the start. And they looked at me and almost started the same place as they had before. <laughs> so after another 15 minutes, I said, look, I'm really sorry. I really don't understand. I think you need to go back a further point. And I think what we need to do is hold the meeting here. We'll have another meeting at some point when we can actually try and understand. Because what they hadn't told us, I don't think, was what they were trying to exploit, what, what the market normally was. And I left the meeting and the person with me said, I'm so glad you did that because I couldn't stand thinking of another 45 minutes of sitting there not understanding. I said, well, why didn't you shout that out? I wasn't sure I should do. It's much better to shout out that you're really going nowhere with a meeting than it is to just continue and not understand. But actually not everybody's comfortable doing that. I suppose it's finding a way, almost pre-practicing a way of saying, because the way you just described it, I don't think anyone could have taken that as rude. But actually, if you've got that up your sleeve, you can easily hold a meeting or restart it. And say it with a smile, it generally helps. I remember being on stage, this was only a couple of years ago, well, it must, must have been 2019, I guess, as that was the last in-person meetings we'd had. But I was on stage in our Tokyo Forum and 300, 400 people in the audience. And someone asked me a question of which I had absolutely zero idea what the answer was. I really didn't know. And I just said, I'm sorry, I do not know the answer to that question. But there's a gentleman who I think is there. And after the meeting, after the conference, I'll introduce the two of you. And so many people said to me after oh, I wouldn't have admitted on stage that I didn't know the answer. And I said, well, what were you going to say? Because you might have been able to come up with an answer, but it wouldn't have been the right answer. I don't Mm. understand why people feel uncomfortable with that. I think it's about being honest with yourself and honest with your audience if you don't know something. There can be an extraordinary sort of obsession with appearances, can't there? Especially in this industry where you don't want to appear that you don't know it or you don't want to appear to kind of rock the boat in a meeting. And the worst version of that is you just let these kind of sham performances kind of play out when Mm. nothing is really happening go back to that meeting, you continue the meeting because you don't want to interrupt the performance. No one gets anything out of it, but everyone no. thinks it's fine kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would definitely encourage people to think about ways to stop things and restart. There is often that kind of rehearsed patter, isn't there, that fund managers will have, understandably oh, enough. They get used mm. to saying the same things and it's kind yeah. of, you do presumably want to get them off that very quickly. <laughs> yeah, you want to ask them a question that they haven't prepped for even if it's as simple as the sort of question of what was the last book you read or the one question that I think isn't asked very often, which I think is a good question, is what's the last stock you didn't buy? Mm. Now, they can obviously give any answer they want to, but it's actually quite interesting to try to encourage them. What was the last stock you did deep research into and you didn't buy and what were the reasons for that? Does it help you think about whether or not it was anything to do with capacity or just what the process was and the challenge Mm. for you then not to buy a stock? Yeah, that's yeah. quite insightful, isn't it? I'm just going to go back to your point about being a bit overawed by famous fund managers. Actually, that just stuck out. I won't ask you who's the most famous fund manager you've researched on, but I just finished reading the book about Bill Gross. I can only imagine yeah. what it must have been like trying to do yeah. fund manager research back in the day when early 2000s something with PIMCO or something it would have been yeah. quite a thing. Our team had several meetings with him and I'm sure there are stories to tell. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to sort of, I guess, slightly more on the investing side? Do you have mm-hmm. any sort of guiding principles or ideas generally for investing yeah I mean from my perspective it's a tough job it's one where you are guaranteed to get probably at least 40 if not 45 percent of the decisions you make wrong it's how does that impact the individuals we talked about are they working for a supportive firm do they have the tenacity to 
be able to work through that. I think the important thing is to know when you're investing what it is you're trying to achieve. So I always argue that as I got closer to retirement, I didn't really care. I wasn't too concerned about what the index did. What I wanted to do was invest my $100 and make sure it was maybe $102 or if I was very lucky, $104, not $60. So my risk tolerance would change as I got towards retirement. So I think it's really important to understand each client is individual in terms of where they're going, what they're trying to achieve, and then helping guide the investment in the way that suits the client. I'm not a big fan of benchmarks. I think benchmarks have created the sort of slavery to benchmarks that's not necessarily good for end clients because that might not be related at all to their benchmarks. It's really important if you invest in a manager and they are matching what you want them to do, going back to my earlier point Mm. about being a growth bias manager, if they're doing what you expect them to do, then that's fine. If they're in the portfolio, maybe with a value manager who's doing better or worse at different times. So as long as you know what everything in the portfolio is designed to deliver for you, and then what the overall holistic portfolio is trying to guide you towards. There's a place for alpha, there's a place for passive, there's a place for alternatives. It's just how you put them together. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We were going to come on and probably connect to actually what we're going to come on to, but it's kind of how you're thinking about manager selection in today's environment by today's environment i guess meaning the complexity of the fund management space all these different products that exist as well as the number of managers that exist like you say a thousand global equity managers in terms of where we are in technology and various macro sort of challenges how do you bring all that together to a coherent kind of view on manager selection and what it will mean just to clarify i might have said that but there's a thousand global strategies not necessarily managers there's a lot of managers as well so i think it's a pretty tough environment for active managers. I think many clients have moved away from active management. Those that haven't are probably broadly happy with their managers. Obviously, it's been a more challenging last six months or so. If people are happy with their managers, they don't really want to change because it is quite a long process and it is an expensive process to change. So something's got to be wrong, really, for you to change your managers. And I also think as you've seen this trend away towards the sort of buyouts towards delegated and fiduciary mandates, that will again have an impact on the search process and the changing nature of selections. I mean, I can remember a million years ago when you would have five or six managers over a couple of days in a beauty parade. I genuinely think that's pretty rare these days. It's more about clients would come to Mercer and say, who are your two favourites for this? And you might meet two managers. but not really the whole beauty parade that whole aspect of it I think is pretty much gone now so I think manager selection is now different I think it will continue to change as the world for the clients moves as I say towards a different environment do you think that's for the best do you think the five manager sort of beauty parades was maybe going a bit OTT or do you think it was adding value no it wasn't adding value because it's a bit like if you think about trustee meetings I was a trustee on the Church of England pension scheme when I first started, we'd get all of our managers in every quarter. Well, they really had nothing to add. They had some interesting stories to tell, but they didn't really have anything to add. So I don't think the five managers in a beauty parade was going to help the client because inevitably, again, they'd look to the consultant. And I think much more important, as I say, is understanding where each manager. And so the other way of looking at it, Dan, is to say, what's missing in the portfolio? Let's target a strategy mm. that might help us fulfil a need in that strategy. And we don't need five strategies. We don't need to choose from five. We can just choose from two or have your recommendation. Yeah, yeah I suppose particularly in the context of consultants not being allowed to sit on the fence anymore. 
it does feel, no, exactly. If it does feel like five is overkill. We're saying consultants can't sit on the fence as much now, yeah. Your answer there just triggered another thought I just wanted to pick up on just really quickly is just any reflections on how often clients should hear from their managers? Because there's sort of two mm-hmm. bookends to that, aren't there? There's uh, kind of like on the one end, you can say we well, don't want them all in every quarter because then you just get a lot of the same macro stuff. On the other hand, if you never see them and just kind of pass them off to the consultant, I have the consultant saying the middle, it's not, it's not exactly the relationship yeah. goes. So any thoughts on where the happy medium? I think once a year. I think it's a good idea to have your manager in. Client should set the agenda, not the manager. Client should say, we've done all of this. We know you well. What we want to talk about is, I don't know, for example, what you've done on DNI or what you're doing on net zero or what you're doing on something. One of the consultants that Mercer had, a, I thought was a really good idea, was that they would get three or four of their managers together and meet with the client for a round table. Now, not all managers are prepared to do that, but I actually thought that was a good way of challenging and getting some Mm. different diverse views through so if you can do something like that maybe that's another way of being a bit innovative and getting a different perspective I know one or two of our clients do that sort of approach Mm. it's quite rare still isn't it but it's still quite rare but I don't see why it couldn't be something that would be quite challenging I mean you obviously need a relationship because obviously there will be things that go wrong so there needs to be that relationship between the client and the manager but it doesn't need to be the PM all the time. I think what's equally important in this day and age is making sure your operations are right, making sure your compliance is right. All those sort of hygiene factors, you want to be able to make sure you're speaking to the right people about that as well. So Deb, just before we start with our sort of wrap up questions, Mm. what are you expecting to be looking at over the next sort of 12 months or what are you hoping to see within the industry in the next 12 months? I'd love to see the industry continuing with its initiatives around DNI, particularly the inclusion aspect, but also things like social mobility. I heard a stat, which was from a CFA meeting maybe five years ago, that I think it was over 55% of recruits coming into the industry were from private schools. That needs to change. I know it is changing, and I know there's a number of very good initiatives around that. So that's something I'm quite passionate about seeing change over the time. I also, at some point, I'd like to see uh, move away from benchmarks if we could ever get there. Yeah. If you're buying a product such as an equity product, what are the characteristics of that portfolio that are likely to give you the returns you expect? So why not show what those characteristics are and how those characteristics have perhaps changed over time? I think there's much better reporting that could be done rather than just showing an index return. So I think those are the things that I'm sort of passionate about and would like to see change. But uh, obviously less of an influence position now to change benchmarks, but I can continue to argue for it. (laughs) Absolutely. Great. Deb, so what's one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole conversation? I'd like people to take away that our industry has a real purpose. We are helping. Mm. My daughter's a teacher, so I always use teachers, firemen, whoever it may be. We are helping people have a more dignified retirement or to help them with their savings. And it's really important that we have a strong sense of purpose and we share that. I don't think as an industry we share that. We need to get into the schools. We need to have people understand Mm. what it is we're doing so that people can perhaps come into our industry as well and help us achieve that purpose. And actually that being quite a two-way conversation, I suppose. So not only are you going into schools so that young people understand what investing is, but you learn from what they're saying as well. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, for most Mm. of them, they probably don't understand how things work. But if you can encourage them and they can say, well, why should we save for a pension from the age of 18? And you teach them about sort of compounding. Exactly. It's very, very powerful both ways. And Deb, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? It's a tough job. I think people see it as quite a glamorous job. I'm not sure that's the wrong mm. right term, but 
it's a tough industry. You don't get all your decisions right. So it can be quite a humbling industry. Mm. And I think people can get quite challenged by it. I mean, Alpha is rare. It really is. And to succeed, you need to be disciplined. You need to be focused. And you need really to keep it simple. I've always believed that if you can't articulate to me in 10 minutes in a very straightforward way, exactly what I'm researching and buying, then actually people have failed. Well said. Yeah, it was a great answer. I love that answer. It's saying what's most underappreciated is how hard investing is. Yeah. We've, we've asked that question so many times. A few other people have given the same answer you just did. But funnily enough, a few have given the exact opposite one as well, which really? is how easy it is from the perspective of saying, because you can just go and buy a passive fund really easily. Right. It's a slightly different take on it. Both are true, clearly. Yeah. So it's kind of a mm. weird paradox that is, yeah, on the one is, hand, it, it seems yeah. to be very simple. On the other hand, it's actually incredibly hard. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. That's what it is. Deb, any recommendations for good books or podcasts? My podcasts are probably more traditional of sort of things like Briefing Rooms and Desert Island Discs. So that's probably not going to help anybody on that. But mm, Mary's a Desert Island Disc fan. I, I love, love Desert Island Discs. So do I. I love Desert Island. <laughs> Have you listened to the Richard Osman one? That was great. Yes, you know, it was fantastic. Just, just reading his second book now. So that keeps me out of trouble. Um, in terms of books, there's probably two I'd recommend. One is actually about 10 years old. Make sure I've got the title right. It's called The Loudest Duck. And it's by a lady called Laura Liswood, who I think was an ex-senior advisor to Goldman's. That's right. And it's very good because it gives lots of practical examples about how you can encourage inclusion. You can create diversity. It's challenging, but you can create diversity, but it's really hard to get inclusion. So that's one I would recommend. It's only a small book, so easy to read. The second one is a book called Essentialism, which is by Greg McEwen. And it talks about getting the right things done. And I read it when I sort of went from a five-day week to a three-day week because I realised I couldn't do all of my job, which probably took six days in three days. And actually saying no more often in a very constructive way, not going to meetings that you're not needed at. And as he said, actually, he got respect. He did it very quietly. He didn't announce he was going to do it. He just did it. And actually, he got respect because he focused on what the really essential things were and got those done well. So I think sometimes, and I was guilty of this as well, we can all be full of our own self-importance and thinking, well, I need to be at that meeting. Actually, you don't. You can either follow it up or you can have someone you trust delegate it to and let them get on with it. It's a win-win for everybody when you recognise you're not as important as you perhaps think you are. So, and I would put my hand up to say I'm guilty of that sometimes. So. So Dan was nodding. So I guess, Dan, you might yeah, have read that one. I've read that one. Loved it as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, really yeah. love that principle. Yeah. The first one sounded interesting, though. I haven't come across that, but that sounds yeah. really useful. So I'm going to get yeah, on to it's that. A really, it's a, I dug mine out of the cupboard. It's a pretty small book, so you can read it right. fairly quickly. Great. Well, we'll put some links to those in the show notes so people can pick those up. Deb, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Nice to see you both. Enjoy Thank you, today. Deb. Thanks, Thank Mary. You. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care.